This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson. Today is the first in a two-part series of podcasts looking at documenting growth and monitoring progress for writing or assessing writing. Now, I want to start out with this idea. A pig doesn't get heavier by weighing in it. A pig doesn't get heavier by weighing it. Students don't become better readers and writers by assessing them. There's this idea that we can assess our way to reading and writing proficiency. And that's a kooky, wacky, nutty, zany idea that we must divest ourselves of. So let's start with the why of assessment. The why questions don't get asked often enough. Why do we assess? For what purpose? Now, in terms of writing, I hope the answer is this. I hope the answer is we assess so that we can help students become better writers. If not, we're wasting our time. We assess to determine strengths and to build upon weaknesses. We assess to document growth, but ultimately we assess to find out what we can do to help students become better writers. Now, too often, assessment is used to, quote, hold teachers accountable, unquote. Ugh. Now, why is it that some groups continue this war against teachers and insist on the deprofessionalization of education? Hold teachers accountable? We want intelligent, creative teachers to enter the field. But then we treat them like young, wayward adolescents. We don't trust them. We think we need to hold them accountable. We tell them what they must teach and how they must teach it. We assign standards and measures that must be used. Maybe we should give them a curfew as well. That's it. Let's give all teachers a curfew and a mandatory bedtime and restrict their TV watching and phone access if test scores fall below a certain percentage. Yeah, that's the ticket. Hold them accountable. However, what happens when groups continually try to hold teachers accountable? Teachers teach to the accountability measure. In other words, they teach to the test. I mean, who wouldn't? The result of this accountability nonsense is that instead of testing what is taught, teachers teach what is tested. And this is called ass-backwards in some circles, utter clownery in other circles. With such ass-backward clownery, the curriculum becomes narrow, focusing only on that which can be measured and quantified by an external entity. So, what doesn't work? What about standardized tests for writing? That's the topic of this two-part series, Assessing Writing. Standardized tests are relatively easy to administer and score. Takes an hour at most, maybe two. Whole bunch of students can sit down all at the same time and within a short amount of time, the test is complete. 
and a norm reference test enables schools to compare each student to a national norm. This is a wonderful idea, yes? No. Standardized tests can measure spelling, punctuation, and grammar using multiple choice or true-false questions, but that's not writing. So let's look at writing tests. These writing tests have been around for a while. Here, generally, students are given a prompt and a piece of paper to do some pre-writing thinking before writing. And then they have a time limit to write, anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes, usually. And then these are either computer scored or sent off to be rated by scored, trained, rated and scored by trained raters. Now, Reggie Rootman said this about trained raters. She said, in general, scores are poorly paid, have minimal training, are given very little time to read each sample, and are expected to read student papers for many hours at a stretch. And these people are determining your success as teachers of writing. Now, these are better than standardized tests, the writing tests, but still not good because it's an artificial writing situation. It's not what real writers do when they write, hopefully. Thus, with the writing test, it's a validity question. Now, it would be very easy to teach students to perform like trained seals at a circus and make writing scores go up on these artificial writing measures? Absolutely, it would be easy. You'd simply break this artificial writing down into steps and teach each step with guided and independent practice. And then you'd create a lot of artificial writing experiences with artificial writing prompts and artificial time limits, and you'd have artificial writing practice, and you'd spend time talking about your artificial writing and how to get better at artificial writing. And maybe we could teach students to balance a ball on their nose at the same time. But the question is this. Do you really want students to perform like trained seals on some cockamamie writing assessment? Or do you want students to be able to write and think. Now, the way some schools approach assessment of writing, I sometimes wonder. Seems like they want the trained seals. Now, let's look at traits of writing. What if we define the traits of good writing and then taught and assessed each of the traits? Now, that's been done. In her book, Six Plus One Traits of Writing, Ruth Cullum recommends teaching writing by focusing on the six plus one, or seven, traits. <clears throat> her emphasis is on teaching these traits and using rubrics to assess. Now, here are the traits. Number one, ideas, meeting and development of the message. Number two, organization, the internal structure of the piece. Number three, voice the tone of the piece and the personal stamp, word choice, the specific vocabulary the writer uses, sentence fluency, the way the words and phrases flow, conventions, that's the mechanical correctness, and presentation, the overall appearance. These are the seven traits that Cullum says are so very important. And she creates rubrics 
This approach is based on rubrics. Each rubric has seven traits, the seven traits I just said, and descriptions of five levels of each trait. You simply look at students' writing and assign them a number for each trace based on the rubric description. Better writing through rubrics, yes? No. The problem with the six plus one traits is that the focus is on the product or the traits and not on the process. The traits then become the writing program. You're teaching traits and not process. But who was it that decided that these were the traits that were important and why? Do they reflect the real-world writing that real-world writers write? Now, I'm a real writer. I really am. I'm real, and I'm a writer. Thus, I'm a real writer. And as I'm writing this podcast, I'm looking back at Cullum's six plus one traits. And you know what? The traits don't fit. In my professional life, writing letters and memos and emails and articles and reports and books. They just don't fit into this otherworldly list of traits. Voice and tone. Now, in most professional writing, the goal is objective, academic, or professional voice, word choice. What does that mean? They simply were looking for things they could measure. And they said, aha, we can measure these traits. Let's get them up on a rubric and we can teach and we can numberize our kids. We've been over-rubricized. The basic basis of a rubric is this. You look at the product or performance you're trying to teach. Then you define three to six traits of a good product or performance. And then you describe three to five levels of each trait. For example, given this trait, this is what a rating four would look like, a rating three, a rating two, a rating one, and zero. And then you compare the product or performance to each trait and find the number level that seems to match. Simple as that. Now, there's nothing wrong with using a rubric here and there, but we've become over-rubricized. We've got ourselves a bad case of rubritis, and the stinking rubrics do little to move us forward in our teaching and little to move students forward in their writing. But since the stinking rubrics generate stinking numbers, the stinking rubrics continue to exist. Now, I want you to know, you youngsters out there, there was educational life before rubrics, and it was a wonderful life. We taught stuff, and children learned stuff. But then the number monkeys began to creep into education. Nothing exists, they said, if it can't be quantified. So the number monkeys threw down their bananas and invented the rubric. Rubrics enabled them to put numbers to things and enumerate our students and quantify their learning. 
They could point their little monkey fingers and say, that's an 18 and that's a 16 and 18 is better than 16. So that one is better than that one. And then they'd screech and shake their monkey arms above their head. And if the average writing rubric scores in class A was 21.3 and the average writing rubric score in class B was 18.7, the number monkeys would conclude that teacher A is doing a better job of teaching than teacher B. We've got to hold teacher B accountable. See, we've got to get those test scores, those 18s up to 21s. Everyone has to be a 21. So what's wrong with the stinking rubrics? Every form of assessment has strengths and limitations. And here are some of the limitations with using rubrics. Number one, they are too complex and cumbersome to be of any use. It takes time to figure out what exactly constitutes each level of performance with each trait. Then evaluating and deciding if it's one level or another, a two or a three, a three or a four, takes additional time. They take time to create and time to use, and the cost reward here seems high in terms of use and time. Number two, they give the illusion of objectivity. We think because it's described, we can just say, there it is, it's definitely a two or definitely a three. Just match the paper to the trait, right? But often, a paper will meet some of level 3 and some of level 2. And then do you give it a 2.5? Who defines the traits and the levels of each trait? The rubric subjectivity is wrapped in an illusion of objectivity. The subjectivity of the rubric is wrapped in the illusion of objectivity. Number three, the focus is on the traits or writing product and not on the writing process. Number four, a rubric often creates a distorted version of the performance they're trying to capture. In writing, rubrics never capture the full range of what writers do. And number five, rubrics get students focusing on the micro instead of the macro. It's assumed that by putting all the little micro rubric traits together, that they'll have an excellent macro product or performance. This is called part to whole learning. But this is not how we learn complex things most effectively. Whole to part learning has been shown to be much more effective for learning complex skills, such as writing, than part to haul. All right, this has been the reading instruction show. We've been looking at some assessment, some ways to document students' growth and progress as writers. In the next podcast, we'll look at some better ways, some alternatives that make sense, that are more valid and reliable and help students' growth as writers. Imagine that.